Yeah, so I described to, to one of the teams I w- I'm advising um, just in my everyday language that it's important to be treated as partners, not resources. And they said, whoa, say that again, because that's where design has to find its way to get to. Being a resource and God forbid being an, uh, a hired resource, an external resource. Whoa. I know, whoa. I know. <laughs> Those are the the hardest things when it comes back to the path of earning respect i um, don't fully agree with you on that but we can i know we can come back well, to i think this. the i think the design community at large won't fully agree with me because so many people are have great experience as an external resource but I, but i can represent the view from from inside that says it's difficult Welcome to the Path Puddles Products Podcast. This is the second part of my conversation with Scott Zimmer, a former design executive at very much non-design firms. On our long walk in the Buddha Hills, we touched upon his experiences building trust for design within a very business-driven environment, laying the ground for building in-house design teams, how a culture that respects design can look like, how designers can become influencers, getting a seat at the table. Today's episode starts up at discussing what's the difference between being a partner versus being a resource. And we will dive deep into hiring external help, the dangers of the agency model, and the upside of AI in our industry. Without further ado, come walk with us. If you're in a company who's decided they respect and admire design and they go out and they hire an external team to come in and design something, even a, a revered team like an IDEO team or right. pick, your, pick your favorite brand, that team can come in and they can do magic and they can wow people and you can have the business conclude these people are special and brilliant. Yeah, and then they go away. <laughs> I was going to say... Actually, I need to change what I just said, whether I agree with you or not. If we talk about external resources as partners, as the classical agency model, I'm fully with you. But it has its reasons why. My perspective on being an external resource, I think, goes for if there's a company that needs to start taking the steps. Oh, then we agree. And taste it and, and getting a taste of it. Yeah. And then allowing itself to... 100%. Then yes. And then on the long run, no. 100%. Because it goes back to the first, the first impression thing. Like if, you, if your company decides design is going to be important and then you bring in a bunch of people who fail to make an impression, yeah. then you're off to a real slow start. If yeah. you bring in somebody who makes an amazing impression, then you're off to an amazing start. Now you just have to figure out how to continue the momentum. That's right. But a, a quick story of an example on something that we experienced at Capital One with IDEO, actually. Um, It was a great project uh, from start to finish. They helped identify a new service that that could manifest in the app that people really needed. And when they left, they handed it off to the everyday BAU team. And the BAU team because it was already a really good BAU team, we already had Adaptive Path, we were already probably approaching 200, we started iterating on what they left with. 
And I'll never forget the day the president of the consumer business came in and said, what is all of this? And we proudly said, well, this is the latest evolution of the service that IDEO helped us invent. And they said, yeah, but I don't want this. I want what they invented. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was no understanding of connecting the There was no understanding of iteration. Yeah. And frankly, this is, this is an empathy point for us in our field, which is in the marketing world, especially the ad agency world, it was show off a concept. And if that concept, you know, pleases the decision makers, then that's the concept they've bought. And now your role is to bring it to market, right? Yeah. So that's the, the foundation that leaders have without even meaning to. So his impression, he was literally disappointed and he believed in our team. He was literally saying, this is evolving in a direction that isn't what we were excited about. And we said, isn't that great news? That's right. And he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And we said, well, because if we would take what you fell in love with to market, it would fail. And imagine the waste, imagine the reputation risk, imagine everything. If we continue to iterate with, with real feedback from real customers, we're reducing risk and getting closer to taking something to market that will flourish. What was the response? He said, let me think about it. And you can bet he went back and talked to some other people in his ecosystem and said, have you ever learned this lesson? And what do you think of what these crazy designers are saying? And what's this thing about iteration? And is it true? And he came back and said, thank you. Oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. I have to fangirl this story because very often that is not the outcome of these kind of stories. No, other times the executive says, I don't think you understood me. Fix it. Do what I say. <laughs> right? Yes, indeed. Indeed. So again, that goes to the importance of culture. Um, Capital One's culture is really unique. I definitely had different experiences at other cultures I worked at. You said something very important a couple of sentences ago when you mentioned while designers don't understand... They don't speak the language of business, and uh, we mentioned before, but how interesting that uh, designers more and more seem to be going into the business field just to develop this yeah. skill set and this ability, yeah. all of yeah. this, you know, graduating MBAs and yeah. all that. And more and more business studies are also integrated into design studies, but <laughs> we are talking about whether design studies are integrated with business studies. Not that I know of. Yeah, I don't know of many business schools that have added service design tracks. There's a design thinking class, one class at most business schools now. Mm -hmm. But design thinking is a far cry from service design. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And, and I have spoken to, boy, countless senior design leaders who have said, hey, Scott, I'm thinking the next thing I need, the missing piece for me to continue my rise as a design leader is to go get my MBA so that nobody can ever tell me I don't understand the business. And funny enough, I, as an MBA, I wouldn't recommend it. I do think there's merit to the notion that the designers need to understand the business. Yes. But I think what you need to understand is learnable on the job. And I think what 
what they really mean when they say you need to understand the business is they mean you need to empathize with the pressures right. yeah. we're under as business leaders. But the designers, the ones that I, all the designers, they have that capability. I mean, that's that's a core part of our job. Right. So we just have to apply it in that context yes. too. Yes. Right. And I, you know, we keep talking about how challenging it is for design to be respected by business. But at the same time, I also don't want to say that designers are not to blame for that or right. part of that because sitting or having sat on both, you know, on the client side and on the, the other side, I've seen many examples where, frankly, I was appalled by the situation as in, you cannot march in here and sell your idea as like at an auction, an art piece. Right. You're here to serve. And as such, you need to really immerse into the situation of who you're trying to serve. And of course, with their best interest, you can nudge them to a different direction than they originally wanted to go to. But with, with, with respect and with a lot of lack of a better word, education, as in trying to show them why that would be beneficial for them, how it helps their business, how it helps them help others. Right. You know, and if you don't do that, you just say, hey, they don't understand me. I am the creator here. That's not going to take, not going to get anybody. Anyway. And you have to understand that for them to back your idea, they have to allocate their finite resources in your direction. And they're under a lot of pressure. Yes. And so you've got to find a way to appeal to maybe loosening the pressure in other areas. Just the bigger, much bigger picture than just judging Yes. What you're bringing forward as a, as a designer. I want to also tell you a story with uh, one of my clients, uh, a bicycle company. We were at the stage of the service design process where we needed to hire design teams for um, new touch point related tasks. We, mm-hmm. were, we were on the lookout, right? So we had some teams bringing us their work, showing what they can do. They, they brought in three different versions for the task. The guy came in and uh, started by saying, I'm not really into bikes. I, I don't own one and I don't really care. But let me show you our work. You know, oh, with that wow. attitude. Yeah. And yeah. we were sitting with this C-suite people, right? Yeah. So, wait, what? Well, and that attitude is part of the reputation of designers, too. Yes. Let's be honest. Those are the people that are most memorable, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. So, from that moment on, of course, we were half shut down. Yeah. Whatever they would deliver after that, it was thank you, but no yeah, thank you. Yeah. And then another concept they delivered was introduced. We got the brand guide. Which we was got the brand guide. A which, work um, we which just was actually a work. Wrap. So it was like just new and it was, so mm-hmm. it was completely new um, and it initiative, covered and they went, the whole back, initiative. So we um, looked at the brand guide and saying, it was very angular. We so we just made it more round in our design. It was very angular. Oof. Which takes you to the stereotype. Again, look, this is what you work with. Yeah. Your task was not to question that. Oh, that feeds every stereotype. Yes. Of, of aesthetics and graphics only and what well, agencies are a problem, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure they believed it was a good design initiative. Like, um, you just want to improve it. But it uh, just goes to show that they weren't listening mm-hmm. To the business, they were not listening, they were not empathizing what the real task was. So I don't want to paint them in a dark, light. In yeah. a dark, dark light. light that they they were this selfish, artisty types. But it goes to show that they failed to listen. Yeah. And I'm sure they are really talented people, but that's not enough. No. 
okay, here we are. Let's talk about the agency model. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's you like that. You 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 have an opinion on the in-house teams, don't you? Well, I have an opinion on the damage that the agency model does to the rise of respect for design. Right. And and I think it's poison. And I think it is one of the biggest things that's holding the design community back on its ambition to be treated like partners within companies instead of resources. So, How so? Well, first of all, the muscle memory is there that people, especially in the marketing career field, know that when they work with agencies, agencies are waiting to be told what to do. Yeah, that's a special oh. type of relationship. Special type of relationship. Yep. That's that's where the brief comes in. We'll tell you what we want to do in the brief. It also has context, but it also says, here's what you're going to do for us. And then you're going to do it. And then we are going to judge whether it's good enough or not. And so many parts of that are not congruent with great design method of a service design team or experience design team that should start with exploratory research and identify opportunities that could be seized. Then with help of the business, certainly maybe with, with leadership from the business reduce, you know, the possibilities down to something that makes business sense to pursue, but in a collaborative effort. Right. When I started working in this business and, from actually day one, I tried to break down that wall between outside and inside resources. Again, I'm using that word. It's too easy of a word for us to use. And it, and yeah, but we can keep correcting ourselves. And that's what I do too. And the teams that I lead do. We, we end up embracing it as a culture. Like, oops, there's the word again. Yes. That's, that's a positive thing. Yeah, it's a positive thing. Um, but you're right. The exploration and what opportunities there are and the participatory aspect is key to service design and any any designer i think that is prone to or that that hopes to support strategy right like you need to really link those different stakeholders together bring everyone's knowledge on the same page or at least a similar understanding of the situation and with the agency model that was not the case it was not the goal it was nowhere on the horizon even right so i i fully relate and um Another thought that I had while you were speaking was I couldn't count the number of occasions when I would, for instance, present present a process proposal and then the feedback initially was, okay, it's, it sounds good, but can we just jump straight to the design part? Like we can maybe, you know, it seems like a lot of, it's a waste of time to do the research and preparation. And Well, just a quick comment on that. You're right that that's what we fight against and the process is really important, but we also shoot ourselves in the foot when we say the process is the most important. Okay. So I've seen you that. elaborate. <laughs> well, when the, when design teams lead with process and when the, the first update happens and yeah. the update is here's where we are in the process. Yeah. And then the second update happens and it's like, now here's where we are in the process. If you empathize with the receivers of the message who are hoping that you're going to help invent a brilliant new service that changes the trajectory of the business. They're looking for an update on (laughs) how the invention is going and what ideas and concepts you might have, uh, or or how close you are at least to that. And 
I have seen countless times brilliant designers and design teams feel like the the win was sharing the process update because that's what they did in school. Right. That's what the professor was judging in school. Right. <laughs> right. So, but that isn't, if you empathize with the business leader who's hoping that that you bring to the table is the answer, they're like, we want the answer from the design team and we trust that you have a deep process because if they have respect for you, they trust that you have a deep process they'd kind of rather have that process be a little bit behind the scenes unless it needs to involve the business. On one hand, I I fully accept what you're saying and that it's a little bit like what's running under the hood, right, from the Mm -hmm. business perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, especially in an organization where there is very little awareness of what design is doing, Mm -hmm. don't you think that it can Mm -hmm. be somewhat beneficial? Yeah, so so to bring this story home, I think it's critical to share process updates, but I think it's more critical to make process not the lead update. If I were to identify what I've seen work best, it would be helping everyone understand the process, revisiting it at the beginning of every conversation, here's where we are, and then going to the meat of, and here's what we've invented, here's what we've discovered, or here's what we've learned. And the reason it's an important story is it's too easy for designers to talk about process the whole time, and now five minutes are left in the meeting, and the business person is saying, I don't know if you guys understand what we want from you. We don't want process updates. We want to know... How are you coming with the answer? So that's huge. I keep thinking that there is really a vocabulary issue here between these two parties. There's a lack of cultural understanding of one another. And I believe service designers can help stakeholders work on this challenge and close the gap. It's true. So what I also think, this approach should also be part of their education, whatever that education is and wherever it takes place. The translation or the... Yeah, the support, the translation of one way or another. Yeah. I, I have been an independent professional for six years now, so I am that external partner, let's, let's call it that. Yeah. A big part of my job, other than talking about the process, it's really the education. But I don't want to make it sound like I'm talking from a high horse here, so it's, it's not like... You don't know, I do know, right? but rather to make them feel safe. Yeah. This is what's going to happen. This is standing your way. At the end of the day, they still call the shots. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it without them knowing what they are investing into. So I feel like maybe it's 60, 40 sometimes, uh, especially in the beginning. 60% is talking about why we are doing what we are doing and how we are doing it, why it costs, whatever it costs, what are the options, and only the rest of the time goes into actually delivering the work. And as we go along, of course, it shifts. Yeah, I think you'd, I think you'd be surprised that the, during your 60% of your 60-40, they're probably yeah. counting the minutes until you get to the 40. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But there's ways, there's ways to keep it a part of the story certainly ensuring that you spend time on it every time for sure and you can include some of the detail in an appendix or some other some other way for them to be able to go through it that nobody will ever read well they do if they're interested they do they've come back and asked our team's questions before okay yeah absolutely i wanted to mention one other thing on 
on the agency discussion. Yeah. Maybe a couple other things. Every team that we've assembled that I've had experience with where we first brought designers together to a centralized team, the leaders on that team had a language already rolling where they called the people that they worked with within the company um, their internal clients. Okay. And that, you would think, makes tons of sense, sounds logical, but it goes back to begging to be treated like an agency. And it goes back to the, the poison of the, the agency business relationship from the ad agency world that exists. So that's one of the first things we iron out too is, is moving from, instead of calling them a client, let's call them a partner. Because right. partner connotes a level playing field. Let's make it clear that everyone knows the business gets to make the final, the final call on things. But calling them a client takes you in the wrong direction, for sure. And then management styles within an in-house team that come from the agency world. Having leaders of a practice who no longer make... Uh, who just walk around and assign who's going to work on what. Yeah. That's straight out of agency. You know, the the model I think business people have in their minds from, from agencies is there's 20 creative people in that room. We're going to come up with a brief, tell them what we want created, and the nameless 20 creative people are going to come up with something great, come back, and we're going to decide if we think it's great or not. Yeah. So that's the that's how dark the agency model is. And if you allow that to happen with a team, with an in-house team, or even a team that's assembled, including, you know, freelancers and contractors, then you, you're flying completely the opposite direction from respect and being listened to. I mean, what a tragedy to put the business people on point to decide if a design is good or not, when it should be the customers that decide if a design is good or not, Right. And in an agency model, it's actually not necessarily the customers either. In an agency model, who decides if a design is good or not? A design director, somebody who's a manager who gets to walk around and tell people, I like it, fix this. That's good, but do that a little better. So I've had multiple teams, again, that I inherited that came with people in roles like that that as I got to understand what their day-to-day leadership job is, it was I help people fix their designs. And when somebody from one of our business teams calls and needs a designer, I assign one of our designers. I mean, that is as agency as you can get. And basically the designers may as well have no name at that point. Is it important for them to know their name? Yeah, yeah, because... It's important so that they're listened to and respected. Yeah. Treated as a... Treated as a partner. And when they speak up at the table, again, the point isn't to be invited to the table. It's to be included in the conversation and listened to in a way that influences outcomes. That needs to be a person, not just a, a resource. Right. So if it's not an agency model, what does work? Dedicated is a, is a huge step forward. So if any department in a company can have a dedicated design team to work with day in and day out, 
then they can get to know and get to respect and get to listen to those partners. So that's huge. When you say every department, do you really mean every department, like uh, accounting too? I would say I don't mean that. I would say I mean just businesses. Okay. But as I was at the top of my tenure at Capital One, the risk department called us and asked for a design team to be dedicated to them. Love it. Um, so did the fraud department. And I'll, I'll make a, a, an example of where it started with the fraud department. They said, we've got big data now and we have data lakes and we're seeing data patterns. We just don't know what the data is telling us. And we think, and how forward leaning was this of them? We think that based on what we've seen some of your designers being capable of, that if, if we could have design visualizations help tell the story of what the data is telling us, that we may be able to uncover new fraud detection methods. So we built a design team for the fraud department. And after I left, they built a design team for the finance department. Why? I asked. That's amazing. Why? They said, well, the finance department came to us and said, we're basically service providers as a finance team working with all the teams in the bank. Yeah. And we'd like to design a service that works better for the teams we partner with as a finance team. And so we're thinking stuff that you guys do on the service design side of things where you're thinking through end to end what happens, where are the moments that matter. We're thinking that would be really impactful in us improving the way we deliver our finance services within the company. So this actually goes back, though. They could have said, sure, we'll do a project for you. Project's another dirty word, though. <laughs> How so? Well, because it comes and goes. So I think it is too little discussed and too little understood that this notion of always improving is something that people, customers expect at this point, humans expect maybe. Uh, certainly it's what we are accustomed to in the digital world, you know, downloading the new iOS update yeah. on a regular basis. Imagine if iOS 16 was a project and then the team that built iOS 16 was disassembled and spread out to other parts of Apple where they needed them. And when the funding came through to build iOS 17, they assembled a new team and set out a 18-month roadmap. Imagine how much is lost of the momentum and what people had learned and, you know, what they're doing and, like, what a waste. There's a reason why they put a price on recruiting new talent to even an old or a, an up-and-running thing. So that, that example just extends to anything that you would expect needs to continually improve should not have the word project involved. It should, another P word, persistent, a persistent team. And, and the way that that changes for, for a company, which is used to investing in projects, like people come through and say, we want to do this project. It's going to cost $14 million. Are we approved or not? The way that discussion changes for a company that's evolving is we want to build a persistent team that can continually iterate on this experience and we want it to be four increments of agile pods or something like that 
with with a layer of support from service design and research and whatever. And then what's approved isn't a $14 million project. It's a $6 million annual spend for here forward. And once that spend is approved, how game-changing is that? Because you don't have the fight for budget next year. You have a team in place. And then if the team's delivering, but the business wants more from whatever that product or service is, if there's not enough throughput, for example, too small, the business gets to make the decision, well, let's expand capacity. Instead of spending $6 million on this service to continually iterate and update, let's spend $10 million next year. And then back to empathizing with the business, they have to find ways to free up money to make that happen. And you know what? They can. They just have to look for old roles old approaches, old methods that are not used as much anymore and they have to pull dollars from those. So sales incentives or advertising dollars or people who write business requirements or tons of old roles where people are just holding on to their their See, career. Yeah. yeah. That somebody needs to be able to make the bold decision like, yeah, that was vital to how we operated in the 90s but we're trying to operate differently now. And that includes persistent capacity-funded teams. Um, And I only say that because in the U.S. in Silicon Valley or at tech type of companies, this is common knowledge. This isn't even a discussion. You mean like that's common practice? This is the common practice, yeah. But at, at companies that are in industries that are laggards like healthcare or finance or telecom or they're just trying to get their heads around moving out of project land. And, and what ends up being very interesting is it affects designers as much as any function out there because all the other functions are relatively okay with it. Telecom is a strange animal. It could be tech, like a tech type of company. But uh, (laughs) as we see very often, it it looks different. Well, there's an extreme tech side of telecom. And then the rest of the entire company is kind of 50 years out of date. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not only from my experience with with the telecom I worked with, but my close friends that have worked at others agree. And you you as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, they're trying to change and embrace new ways of doing things. So, um, but they're really used to the agency model as well. I'll tell you that. When I landed at Verizon, the Verizon app had been created by an agency. It was beautiful. It worked pretty well, too. It was created by a premier agency in New York City. One problem. It was created 19, 20 months ago. And I had senior executives come to me and say, well, Scott, you are now in charge of the experience and the design of the app. This is wrong with it. That's wrong with it. How is it improving? What are you guys doing? And I had to say, well, because of the funding model, the agency that we hired is gone. <laughs> the people that built it are gone. 
Um, the fact that the colors are from the ad campaigns two years ago, pastel colors, and they look outdated now, they're all gone. So we need to be able to build persistent teams that are always evolving things. And in that world, what we did was we began to close down agency relationships that had existed for a long time and take those dollars in-house. Because like we said, something has to give. You can't just show up as a designer and say, it needs to be persistent, my way. You have to empathize with the reality and you have to find the money. So we had to make our own business case for why that made sense, which meant myself and the other design leaders had to flex our business muscles, but also build great partnerships with people on the, on the finance team who could, who could build the business case. We didn't have to do it ourselves. We had to spearhead it and request it. I was going to say you had to be their partner. Yeah. No one was going to do it for us. But so we shut down multiple agency relationships, brought those dollars in-house to the tune of millions, and used some of those dollars to acquire a moment, which was the experience design, smaller experience design studio that could thrive within Verizon. Again, and that in that moment it was probably adding a third to the size of the team it wasn't like creating the whole team but it it added management and mastery level you know the people that were leading moment yeah are brilliant and they still are brilliant and all but one are still at Verizon I'm so excited to say that's the other thing you would think is a big problem well it is if you're going to acquire an agency to come into one of these laggard types of companies Typically, unless you work very, very hard, the company will chew up the agency people and spit them out. Yeah. Say, you don't, you don't mix with our culture. Culture. I was going yeah. to, I've been. And the agency people will say, this is horrible. This is the worst thing ever. The, the rules and process and bureaucracy and red tape, I can't stand it here. And the ties. Everything. So I had to work very hard with the first one with Adaptive Path and then with the, the ones I did after that to, to say no. We're making an investment. We're really going to look out for creating a culture where um, this prized talent can succeed. And whenever I ran into a company policy that worked against that, I had to call special meetings and influence. What was your experience with that? At Capital One, again, that culture is unique. So I was just very fortunate. Um, I still had to overcome a lot. But I ended up finding my way to support each time or finding someone who would support me based on logic and data and et cetera. And then with that momentum, I took that into the other cultures I evolved and, and I knew it was possible. So even when I hit bigger friction, I was able to find a way through it and, and continue to kind of build that muscle. I would like to move to the topic of how does one know that they hired the right people? We talked about yeah. if you stick with the old model of working with an agency or even purchasing an agency, you have a good chance of running into the older type of agency where, which is based on the advertising and a different catering industry. Yeah, I think activity. it's important when we talk about agency being poison to a culture. It's most it's the advertising agency agency that causes the damage. Um, Adaptive Path as an agency had a fantastic culture. But yeah, I think I know what you're getting to. <laughs> It's if you hire someone on with a, with a deep agency 
background, they have a lot of pride in that background. And if they don't see anything detrimental to acting in that same way as they take on a role within an in-house team, they bring that culture to the in-house team and do the opposite of everything I just described. They announce to everyone on their in-house team, we're going to call them internal clients. We're going to ask them what they want from us. We're going to do anything we need to do to serve them. They advocate for rules like we're going to create relationship managers to deal with this business um, who can translate and all of those things end up causing trouble. And keeping the ends under the hood. Yeah. Hide the designers. Right. There's a mentality that that the senior leader at an agency is the one who deserves to go in and present things and get the credit when things go well. But in a in a thriving design culture that's built the right way, the senior leader would say, hi, everyone, I'd like to introduce you to the the more junior leader of the team that actually did this because they'll be able to talk to exactly the process and decisions that they made that brought us to this moment. And you can imagine what that does for respect. Everyone in the room says, wow, I didn't know that even the more junior people on this team had this much knowledge and depth and were able to lead their way to create things like this for our company. How would you call someone in a lead role with a service design background? We would just call them a design lead. And we would have them designing. Like the service designer as a senior manager would still be leading a team to make decisions to shape something, whereas a design director with an agency background wouldn't be doing anything. They would assign it to the underlings and wait until they had created something and then they would come in and adjust it a little bit and present it, take the credit for it. <laughs> I mean, it's... If you hear a visceral reaction from me, it's because it's real. I understand. But still, this type of directive might struck a familiar chord with business leaders. Yes. It's something they have heard yes. for so long. So imagine the conversation when the creative director goes in and says, this is what my team has worked hard to design. And the business leader says, I like this. I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that. If you have a creative director with an ad agency background, they say, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I don't have any further questions. I'll go tell the team we can do better next time. <laughs> Is that your experience? That's my experience. <laughs> with ad agency background. Yeah. And the reason is simple because in the ad agency world, you either please the client or what? Or you're fired. That's I think that's such a critical thing to say. What does leaving the client constitute in one or another world? Yeah, I love it. If you come from an ad agency, yes, like you have to listen to every word. But I think as a service designer or a leader of a service design, that's not really project, initiative. Initiative. Yeah. Your your responsibility is to show them what would be beneficial for them based on their yeah. information. That's right. Based on outside information. My point exactly. So if you have someone with an agency background, it's a rare person that can pivot to, to act in that other way of challenging the executive. Challenging, yes, that's the word. Yeah. But in a, in a constructive way. Respectful and yeah. constructive way. Like, I hear what you're saying, yes. but let me just offer another point to consider. And then having that executive go, 
holy shit. You just opened my eyes to something. Yeah. Thanks to your background and your courage to speak up. And the initiative will go better moving forward. So let me bring this up because this is my experience. So when I work with a company on the long term, initially, I find it's easier to do this kind of interaction. Like I'm respected and accepted to deliver criticism, constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. But the longer we work together, the more I somehow get um, to be part of the body of the organization. And I, I get to be communicating, let's say, more uh, directly with lower level leadership. Mm -hmm. You're expected to comply more? Yes. Wow. Like, yeah. Like the work that I deliver becomes a threat rather than an opportunity. Or I, this is what I've experienced in some cases. So how do you handle it? Yeah, I, I, I always try to uh, highlight the fact that if they use this material, it will help them also to get somewhere. But I feel that in those moments, the goals are different. For me, the goal is still to advance the situation of the product or the organization. Whereas their goal is to advance their situation within the organization. Yeah. And the road to that is not the shortest way between, you know, two points. It's not the straight line. This is a huge point that designers are running into everywhere, which is when you run into middle management who is afraid to let you steal the show or let you make a, a big impact or in some way in their mind take the spotlight away from them they do a number of things. They cut you out of the conversation so you're not in it next time. Or they belittle you or they say things behind your back or they'll call you an external vendor. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's it's one of the big things that design has been challenged to overcome. Because they'll say things like, we don't need this kind of design expertise. I can handle it. And people around them will say, really? Um, you can't do that if you're talking about law or if you're talking about yes. coding in Python, but you can do that if you're talking about service design, at least to someone who doesn't know much about service design, right? I would like to talk a little bit about your new venture and adventure. <laughs> what is it that you have put your heart into this time? So for the last year, I stepped away from Truist and am finally pursuing my entrepreneurial uh, ambitions all in in addition to advising but all in um, and following my heart and what I've experienced as a leader and a lot of what we just talked about we're looking to help people who are transitioning their careers into emerging fields so as a senior design leader I was typically someone to take risks on people within my team and if we needed a metaverse designer, I would, I would find it difficult to hire a metaverse designer with a real background from a, from a gaming company, et cetera, to come into a bank. So I would tap someone within the team who had an aptitude and an interest and a foundation to be a metaverse designer and welcome them to step into the role, support them to get the training. And often what we were missing was connecting them to an accomplished expert who could apprentice them. 
So we're embracing the advent of AI and the network of friends and interested parties I've been able to assemble over the years. And we're basically replicating what happens in a tight community like Silicon Valley, Hello. where if you want to change careers, you can find somebody who can tell you what it's like in that new career and they can guide you. Uh, we're making that possible via a technology platform that we've called Attempt. The word came up time and time again when we were doing interviews. People would say, well, I'm tempted to move into this career oh, space. Okay. But I'm afraid to because I don't know how to make the right choices. And then there would be leaders who would say, I'm tempted to hire this person onto my team based on their background. But I'm afraid to, even though they have a adjacent background, they've never done metaverse design, for example, or they've never done service design, or they've never done... It goes outside of design as well. They've never done blockchain engineering, even though they've been a database engineer their whole career. And so what we're doing is really supercharging mentorship by bringing experts onto our platform who can guide people making the transition and solving for the big problem that experts have today and maybe maybe some listening to this podcast are, are feeling this right now too, which is they want to help be a positive influence on others' careers. And they know how to say, do this, avoid that. Or choose this education, avoid that one. Yeah. But they can only do it for a limited number of people. Four or five people is what I was typically finding. And I was typically finding experts would say, oh my gosh, yes. I'm mentoring five people right now. The only problem is it's only five. And the other problem is I get no compensation for it. So I have to do it at night or weekends or whatever. So we're going to see if we can change that to add some compensation via a subscription model and to scale it with, with help of AI. And some of the things you may have heard about from companies like character.ai and others where AI can be taught to think in the voice of a person. And so we're training LLMs right now to be able to answer basic questions in the exact voice of that expert, um, allowing, allowing that expert to be able to help more people. Yeah, it is. How do you feel about AI responding to someone in your voice, asking a question about you know, how to build design leadership in a company? Well, there's, there's certainly risk there. And so we're applying our design principles, which is we're learning by doing. So the first thing we're doing is um, there are zero answers going straight to the person that asked the question unless they've been curated by the expert. But if you're the expert and you're mentoring more people than ever before and you have the help of an AI engine that says, well, the usual way you answer this question is the following. And you're able to look at it and go, yeah, that's pretty good. And, you, and your only role is to click approve or your only role is to edit two words and say but in this person's case I would change this now all of a sudden you're more efficient and you feel like you've still got control so that's what we're experimenting with and we have several uh, we're calling them sponsors we think a, a word that's more embracing more committed than a mentor uh, is a sponsor someone who sees it through helps that person get to where they're trying to go and we're calling the people who are 
aspiring to get somewhere, Seekers. So we're uniting sponsors and Seekers in emerging fields and service design is one of our first fields that we're officially in. I'm curious to see where this way go. <laughs> I'd like to ask you more about the apprenticeship concern or question you have. Like, what do you think could be exciting and what do you think could make it all not work? Your, your initiative? Yeah, or something like it. Scaling a, an, a model of apprenticeship where people learn to make pivots through the help of others. I think it's very hard for me to answer that question without my really currently strong prejudice against AI. Yeah. Um, and I need to work on that because I think I see a lot more danger in the potential bad or mis mistreated outcome versus the positives. Even though I also use ChatGPT, I also use a lot of uh, services that AI already provides. But I feel like when we tap into, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe if I think about how it would represent me, it would mean that something, another entity represents my knowledge. So I'm not feeding into, so far that's my impression. Mm -hmm. I'm not just feeding into like a common knowledge that is, you know, fed by you, fed by Jimmy, fed by Mary Ann. But it's a representation of my knowledge in a different entity. And that already means somewhat cyborging me outside of my body instead of instead of um, enriching my existence because it becomes something independent from me. Yeah. So that, I think, is a scary part of the idea for me while I really support the driving initiative. Like, I really think is an existing need on the market, especially with um, a climate where, you know, it's often being discussed that you don't know what even what kind of jobs there will be in five years time. Right. So very much it's it's very much possible that you and I will need to use the same platform in, you know, a couple of years time to update <laughs> our own knowledge to a level that is needed. So I see this as a general a benefit for anyone on the on job market. So on a theoretical level I'm a full supporter of it and I think it's a beautiful initiative and it also encourages some kind of a human um, network to grow and a it human does. connection between two individuals. And yeah. and we know from, I think I can say this even for you, but correct me if I'm wrong, from our own careers that those relationships were milestones to where you got to. Right. The personal connection. And it's not so easy to, to formulate when you are not going to university, when you're not attending some sort of a frame of an education or whatnot. To, to formulate those well there's even the question of if i should attend university which one should i attend right and you'd right. want to get that answer right. from somebody who is an accomplished expert in the right. field today you can google that question but it's a nightmare right. and i would add that since covid um remote work became more of a norm and then it's shifting back to you know something that many call hybrid and there are a lot of arguments about what hybrid means but let's not get into that it's another interesting topic and for me who I, I consider myself someone working in an international, in the international environments. And I find it's critical for my work because of keeping my mind fresh and also just having connected or being connected to outlooks that are not, you know, in my closest circle. But I'm currently sitting in a place that's not in the middle of the world, business speaking. 
I'm, I'm sitting in Budapest, which at the moment is not driving the world economy. So what I'm trying to say here is that a platform like that would also allow these kind of relationships to be formed regardless where you are in the world. So that's another, I think, throw on the side. Yeah, I think we're all worried about the downsides of AI. Um, and I think what my co-founder and I are excited about as we press forward is the opportunity to find more upsides. Yeah. And um, we really believe in learning by doing and that, you know, by being in the game and sorting this out, we could have a positive impact on really on people's lives. If, they're, if you're trying to evolve into a new field, connecting you to someone that you would never have access to otherwise yeah. is huge. And the people... the men, unique. Yeah, the, the accomplished experts, I think many we've met feel the same way. They're like, wow, if I can imagine instead of helping five people a year, starting to broaden that impact to help a lot more people a year move into a field that I believe in or have a passion for or you know, influence them. Or just get a chance to move on, yeah. even to get a taste of that field. Yeah. Changing careers is already a big decision and commitment, but there are steps for that, right? Yeah. So you can get your toes wet. Yeah, completely. Well, we'll see how it all plays out. We're pre-launch right now. We have a wait list. Um, we can add the URL to the bottom of this podcast, I'm sure, for, for our pre-launch website. And um, yeah, it'll be fun to keep you posted on it. Scott, thank you so much for your time today and this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Loved it. Good luck with the venture. Yeah, thank you. Bye to the listeners. Thank you for being with us today. Today's episode was recorded in September 2023. Our guest was Scott Zimmer, founder of Tempt. We will leave the link to their venture uh, in the show notes. We would love if we heard from you. You can find us on LinkedIn or on Instagram. Original music by White Hot from freebeats.io. Thank you for listening to us. Bye.